Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and on today's podcast, we have Colin Hansen, editorial director of the Gospel Coalition. He's author of uh, numerous books and editor of a few others besides, uh, including Young Restless Reformed, A Journalist's Journey with the New Calvinist, A God-Sized Vision, Revival Stories That Stretch and Stir Blind Spots, Becoming a Courageous, Compassionate, and Commissioned Church. Colin also serves on the advisory board of Decent Divinity School, and he is a member of Redeemer Community Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Colin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Jared. Yeah, um, you know, I wanted to talk broadly about some history, some recent history. Um, this this thing, whatever it's called, uh, goes by many names. The gospel-centered movement is is you know generally the phrase I like to use, um, but it, it's such a junk drawer <laughs> now um and would love to get some of your insights just you know some background first of all uh you know you you wrote the book or or this book young restless reformed uh which even became a label the yrr crowd uh 12 years on um i remember the christianity today cover story actually encountering that uh, I think 2006, I was leading a Bible study in a friend's living room at the church we were a part of in, in Nashville. Uh, I had a lot of spiritual, e- ecclesiological angst that had been churned up through a sort of you know radical intervention that the Lord um, you know carried out in in my own life, and coming out of that sort of this kind of theological sea change. For me, and I didn't know anything about there was, you know, uh, uh, a movement afoot. Um, you know, these certain preachers and, and all that sort of thing. I was familiar with John Piper and a little bit with Mark Driscoll. And next thing you know, I'm in a friend's living room. I look down on the coffee table, and there's this new Calvinist, young, restless, reformed uh, cover story by a guy named Colin Hansen. And I pick it up and begin flipping through it. And I'm as I'm reading, I'm thinking. I think this is me. I, <laughs> I think I think this is like something that I belong to without even knowing it. What precipitated if we can you know get in the time machine for a minute, what precipitated you know the article um what were you thinking when you wrote did you know that it would be kind of the doorway to something bigger? Yeah, so I love these conversations especially with somebody like you Jared who was there in on the ground floor and you understood all these dynamics and you experienced them. Um, back when back when I was in 2006, really probably early 2006 or late 2005, I was working as an editor at Christianity Today magazine, and I was working on all kinds of different stuff. I think I was a copy editor back then. But anyway, when you're, when you're working in that kind of journalistic context, you're often trying to discern trends. And the big trend back then was pretty clear. It was the emerging church. Yeah. Um, it was the idea that postmodernity is sweeping away everything, um, including our grand sweeping narratives about <laughs> truth. Um, and we need to change. We have to, at the very least, we have to change our ecclesiology. We have to change our look. We have to change our music. But actually, we need to rethink the very assumptions of our theology. Why are we so beholden to these biblical teachings, these 
these expositions. Why can't we get more interested in a narrative story and on and on and on. Right. And so you can remember some of the more popular figures. I mean, it's kind of hard to remember now, <laughs> but there was a time when people in the environments of where, where I was at the time in Chicago were calling Rob Bell the next Billy Graham. Mm. Um, and his church was absolutely exploding. His NUMA videos were huge. Brian McLaren was writing about his, uh, his, more, his new kind of, of orthodoxy. Um, which was not an orthodoxy at all, yeah, right. <laughs> his generous orthodoxy. But there were a lot of people, and, and he was arguing in the pages of Leadership Journal, published by Christian Today, that we should just take a pause of talking about homosexuality. Yeah. You know, we should just, so there were a, all kinds of pushing back then for that kind of theology. And I remember thinking, and I was in an environment where a lot of people had been to Christian colleges, and it just wasn't really familiar to me. And so, I was thinking mostly about my experience within a campus ministry um, at a non-Christian private school. And I was thinking, gosh, well, I don't even know who these people are. I don't really think my friends would have had any interest in them because they were reading John Calvin. Um, <laughs> they're reading Charles Spurgeon. That's what they're getting excited about. I mean, gosh, CBD has this big sale. You can get all of Calvin's institutes for for $100 or all Spurgeon sermons that I remember getting for Christmas in this green binding one year. Um, and I thought, well, so what, what is that phenomenon? What's that trend? And so that's when I decided to investigate. And it was the first year that together for the gospel conference in 2006. So that was kind of the, the landmark event that helped to kick off a lot of different things and really coalesced stuff and gave me a chance to be able to report on it. You mentioned some of the other figures like Mark Driscoll. And ultimately, I mean, I'll say when I published that, um, I mean, I felt pretty good, but a lot of journalism is is pretty anecdotal. You, yeah. you have a difficult time of knowing um, how exactly representative this is. And so I do remember having this moment of trepidation. I can remember exactly where I was. And I was just saying to my wife, I mean, is it? <laughs> is this an actual thing? Like, or am I just projecting something here? And then I remember talking to a very prominent uh, figure in the evangelical world, leader, leader of one of the top institutions, who said to me, Colin, this is a figment of your imagination. <laughs> and I'm telling everybody so. What was so funny is that his own son-in-law was a card-carrying member of this movement, <laughs> and he didn't even know it. Um, but he was very out of touch, even though he worked with students all yeah. the time. So that was just some of that, some of that dynamic, some of that. Yeah, I would say certainly 10, 12 years on, nobody doubts anymore. I mean, that, that was clear, mainly because there were lots of people like you, Jared, who said, whoa, that's me. Yeah. Um, and that was that's probably the most typical response I've had. And it's a very gratifying one because it does mean that, that there is an actual discernible movement here of God that continues to this day. Yeah, you know, early on, um, I, I think even rightly so, we could characterize what was happening as kind of a, in part at least, a reaction to, uh, yeah. you know, baby boomer, consumeristic, whatever you call it, um, you know, the seeker-sensitive, attractional, or, or what have you. But at least just sort of like our, our dad's, um, you know, tradition, I suppose, yep. kind of the church growth movement, 
stuff. And there are really kind of two. I mean, you could even see like the emerging church, I think, as as an aspect of that as well. And so it's almost like yeah. this, you know, this divergence for Gen Xers in particular. But um, and so the early, you know, like you said, like you know, the early sort of odds would be like, you know, well, if you're gonna pick one that you think is gonna last, maybe this emerging church thing because you know they're kind of tapping back into ancient ways of you know, yeah. doing church, and they got the candles and what have you, and it seems more rooted in the past and what have you. Um, but even just as reactions, you you tend to think, well, these are just sort of trends um, in in the church, and, you know, we're still not, you know, 20 years in, so perhaps, you know, that still remains to be seen. But the fact that this subculture, which is still a subculture, has um, only become larger and more influential and has you know, strands that touch into major institutions. And um, I think some of its historical rootedness is a part of that. Um, you know, I was trained for ministry where we just read uh, all the guys who were still alive doing the kind of ministries that we wanted. And to make this sort of, uh, you know, transition personally had me reading, like as you said, the Calvins and the Spurgeons and the Luthers and um, and what have you. And so I think there were just... At deeper roots than people realized, and where the emerging church has just kind of emerged into the main line really doesn't, you know, exist much anymore, I suppose. Um, you know, this gospel center thing continues uh, to move on. So you mentioned the Gospel Coalition. Why don't you give us some of the backstory there? How did uh, TGC start? Inaugural conference? How did that begin? Um yeah, just kind of chart the the genesis of TGC for us. Yeah, so a lot of this stuff was happening at the same time without knowing it. Uh, I think it was actually 2006 as well. Um, maybe it was that. Yeah, I think it was 2006. I met with Don Carson, research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. By that time, I was responsible for theological coverage at TG, at uh, excuse me at Christianity Today. And so I went to meet with Carson as this eminent scholar just to ask him a number of different questions about what we should be talking about. And he said, well, you should know about this ministry I'm starting called the Gospel Coalition. <laughs> and it sounded to me, because of my reporting on Reformed theology, it sounded like the exact kind of thing that I was looking for. And I remember, remember me asking, well, can I come to can I come to this event and sit in and kind of documented, and I think his response was something along the lines of, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, that that sounds right. (laughs) So um, I ended ended up writing about Gospel Coalition for the first time for Christianity Today. It was my last article out the door when I then had enrolled at uh, at Trinity. That was also a reason why I was meeting meeting with Carson. And so the Gospel Coalition had, that first event was in August of 2007, Um, there were, it was a significant event for a lot of different reasons. It was only about 500 people. It wasn't advertised. Mm. It was just as many people who could fit in Trinity's chapel. Uh, (laughs) that was, um, one of Keller's most famous messages, um, where he runs through, you know, Jesus is the true and better and runs through the whole old Testament. And then kind of concludes with this crescendo, the Bible's not about you. Yeah. Um, and really kind of stamping that as the heartbeat of, um, of, of a gospel-centered theology there. And then Carson also gave a talk that we've turned into a little book called Prophetic from the Center, 
and he explained what it means to be able to, to speak to the contemporary age, but in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ, by sticking to those core essentials of our evangelical belief from Scripture. And that, more or less, is what TGC was founded at the initial kind of private gathering in 2005 uh, to be able to promote that kind of, that kind of a situation. I'll, I'll give you an example of, of what this looks like. I've gone through some of the notes, and as far as I know, the only thing we have are, are some notes from the 2005 meeting. And you'll recognize a lot of the different figures who were involved in those discussions. But one of the things that Carson did at the very beginning was say that we're entering into a time of significant division and sorting in the church, and homosexuality will be that issue. Mm. And he said homosexuality is kind of like indulgences were in the 16th century with Luther. They are themselves not the root—homosexuality is not itself the root problem, but it has every other root problem tied to it. And so that issue then becomes the unraveling. And— if any, what thing was so fascinating about this, Jared, is that when he said this, um, the Republicans had just uh, won re-election. George W. Bush. It was the Values Voters yeah. election in 2004. Um, gay marriage was banned in uh, Ohio that year. It would then be banned as late as 2008 in California. I mean, we're many years before these things actually changed. We're just coming off a time of significant division in the Episcopal Church of all places with conservatives leaving. But he could see that issue coming. And ultimately, now what we've seen is very predictably it's washed up on the shores of evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, and some of that same residual emerging church. And in fact, many of those emerging church leaders from 2005, 2006, 2007, not only went straight for um, gay affirming theology, but went straight through that to all, all manner of other kinds of heterodoxy. So, um, yeah, that was really what the Gospel Coalition was founded to do in the very beginning, which was to say, at a time when the church is becoming more politicized, when it's, become, when it's been overtaken by consumeristic ideals, when it's been tempted to compromise its theology, its orthodox theology, we need a group of, of pastors who will stand at you know on the on the foundation of the gospel and say, this is I mean here we stand we can do no other. Yeah. I mean it was very much that kind of reformational approach. So despite the fact that the gospel coalition's leaders are are concentrated in that broadly reformed tradition of Anglican and Presbyterian and Baptist and free church and non-denominational, it very much has that reformational spirit that what we're prioritizing here, and that's why I think Jared, you're right. They kind of prefer the gospel-centered language there. Yeah, uh, We're not standing primarily on the foundation of, say, unconditional election, though we believe that. We're standing primarily there on, the, on the, those explicit doctrines of salvation, Christ's uh, free grace for sinners, for all who repent and believe in the gospel. So that's a little bit of that history that 2007, like I said, that first conference, our foundation documents, which with slight changes have been the kind of guiding force for TGC ever since I joined in 2010, and uh, we already had some of the some of the bloggers in place. Not you yet, no. um, but we had uh, had Justin Taylor and Kevin DeYoung by that time, and uh, really a lot of the editorial work um, we start, we began to invest in about summer of 2010 and on. Yeah, so 2007 was the first public conference. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, 
So 2009 was the first time that I attended and took some uh, some of my compatriots from our church plant in Nashville. It was actually the uh, spring before I moved to Vermont, and um, I just remember everything felt so new, um, and yet we just felt at home. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it felt right for a group who had come out of um, really sort of a – yeah, the kind of church we had come out of to, to plant – and we were looking for a home, I guess is you know is the best way that I can put it, a place where we felt like you know they're talking our language, we belong, and that there was so much promise of things we didn't know that we could um explore and 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 learn um yeah, it was really um fruitful and helpful for us so much of what you're describing is almost like you know visionary conviction of even in the face of people saying this is just you know, a flash in the pan or um, this weird kind of, uh, you know, niche subculture or whatever it is, and being able to see on the one hand um, major trends that are going to, as you said, wash up on the shore of evangelicalism in the future, but also that there is a burgeoning movement uh, of young people, and not just young people, but there's just a burgeoning movement within evangelicalism that it's going to resonate with this. Um, how do you decide? Uh, this wasn't one of the questions that I sent you, but it's, it's, it's prompted by, by, good. by what you're talking about. How do you decide when, um, you know, to kind of not necessarily make a prediction, but to take a stance based on what you see? And I'll, I'll flesh that out with just a couple of examples, right? So I remember, I, I believe it was, the just, it was Justin Taylor who posted yep. the review of Rob Bell. Yeah, 2010. That's right. Yep. And, man, <laughs> people like – flipped out and some of them well-meaning you know well I mean all of them well-meaning but you know people that were sort of like hey look you know yeah there's some things that kind of raise your eyebrow but blah 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 um or Piper saying farewell John uh you know farewell Rob Bell that sort of thing right um and so you know based on things like that like how do you know when looking at a trajectory to weigh in or not weigh in when can you say hey this is not going anywhere good yeah. Yeah. Good question. I think it was actually I got to correct myself. I think it was 2011 because we ended up doing a special session on this that we added to our 2011 national conference oh, in yeah. Chicago as well. So we were at yeah three different Chicago locations. That was the one uh, one downtown um, McCormick Place. Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately, there, there was a, there have been a lot of questions. I even saw somebody uh, bringing it up again this week wondering. <laughs> Okay, when you look back on that situation, was it these angry reformed guys um, who essentially made Rob Bell famous, who sold him a lot of a lot of books? And probably because of my job, I can I have access to to see just a few things that that aren't aren't necessarily obvious when when somebody's kind of driving by a situation there. And so I've had a lot of time to to do some introspection there. And I'm not, I'll, I'll come back to addressing your specific question, but I want to get at that phenomenon of, well, gosh, just complaining about it made it worse. <laughs> what fascinates me, Jared, is that there were, I mean, there were thousands of people in Rob Bell's church who heard him preach that entire book and apparently didn't really have a problem with it or at least didn't have as much of a problem with it as maybe they would later. 
Um, but the point is that church emptied pretty quickly after the controversy mm. with the book. And I don't know if it was because people suddenly just, I find it a safe bet usually, Jared, yeah. not to assume that people have a really high degree of theological knowledge or discernment. Yeah. Um, and so I think that the best thing we can do is actually to apply a heavy dose of preventative medicine. In other words, teach people the good so that then they can discern the bad. But you also have to be very clear of helping them to see the bad and pointing that out. Um, I think a, a safe bet when it comes when it comes to this is whether or not you're willing to be introspective about these about problems with with yourself and maybe ways that your own theological development is not as sturdy as you realize, or maybe your own application of that theology. I'll put in a little plug here for Tim Keller. Um, I think one of the things Tim has done most effectively, like when I read his books, I can see the problems with all my friends and my neighbors and my family, but mostly I see the problems with myself mm. there. And I think that's what a truly gospel-centered approach is going to do for us, to recognize that we continue by the power of the Spirit we continue to war against the, the world, the flesh, and the devil ourselves. Um, and that helps to cut out that, that evil source of pride, which comes from when we externalize all sin and all problems to other people. And so we can see this in a couple different ways, and it's fairly endemic to Reformed people in particular, a sense that I have my theology all correct and all of you are wrong, or my church does things the right way, or I have all the right moral views and all of my neighbors you know, are all screwed up. Well, I mean, even, even where that's true, it tends to cut out any sort of effective platform for evangelism. It, it tends to cut out your ability to be able to love your neighbor as yourself, as opposed to simply shouting them down. So, I mean, I, I absolutely believe very strongly, and you can see this from what the Gospel Coalition does with our book reviews in particular, um, when we see stuff that we need to warn people about, we, we're going to do it. Yeah. Um, but if we're not introspective about how these, um, these beliefs are temptations to us as well and to people we know and love, uh, then we're going to do it in the entirely wrong spirit and uh, undermine our very, our very case. Yeah. Uh, I want to put a pin in that because I want to circle back to the introspection uh, in a moment. But first, just ask you, as a further application, um, what do we say, what do we do about, um, for instance, some of the things that Andy Stanley is is saying in publishing? Um, are we at the point where we can say, look, I mean, not farewell, but, but uh, you know, yeah. is it too soon, I suppose, to, to kind of note the trajectory? Or is it just sort of like, eh, he's, you know, it's just kind of squirrely and yeah, so you, a, a very good, straightforward, pertinent question. Um, <laughs> I so the headline's going to be exa- Colin Hansen farewells Andy Stanley. <laughs> right, sure. exactly. So I'm going for. It. Okay, let me give you an example from a couple years ago. Okay. Um, a lot of the stuff that Andy has been saying this year in print, he had been preaching. That's right. And he's he's been preaching for for quite a while, and I remember being incredibly frustrated. I mean, just to, just to make things clear, when you, when you think about the Gospel Coalition and, and, and what we're trying to promote, 
Think about Don Carson's co-edited volume, the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Think about Tim Keller's preaching from the Old Testament. That kind of Christ-centered hermeneutic from Genesis to Revelation and that emphasis on biblical theology, the continuities and discontinuities of Scripture, is the very like essence of why we exist. Um, that, that's, yeah. that's our DNA. So to say things like we need to unhitch from the Old Testament is incredibly offensive <laughs> and very and, and deeply misleading. So a couple years ago, I was very frustrated by what I was hearing. And then I actually happened to run into a couple pastors. Um, and one of them was leading a church that was very much influenced. He had just started it. And he pushed back strongly on me and said, Colin, you just don't understand, yeah. Andy. Yeah. You just you don't listen to everything. He is so brilliant in his communication and his nuance. You just can't comprehend him. <laughs> He's the evangelical N.T. Wright, then. Yeah, this is well, what you're saying. <laughs> you know, well, okay, so you're you're already a couple steps ahead of me there, Jared. <laughs> so then, um, so I I had some stuff lined up, and I and I I decided not to do it because um, I thought, okay, well, maybe there is something I'm missing here. The sermonic medium is somewhat limited in terms of length. And also, if, if Stanley has a certain kind of view, which is very strange to me, but a certain kind of preaching view that says you should never believe what he says in one sermon unless you understand it intertextually with every other sermon he's preached. Yeah. I was like, that's very strange to me, but okay, I guess. Then he came out with a book, and he said the same things in the book. I actually met with some folks who worked on the book, and they were somewhat critical of me in the same ways after some of the reviews that we published. Mm. And I said this, I don't, treat, I don't treat books the same way that I treat sermons. Okay, in a book, you have the time, you have the space, you have the help, you have the, that medium expects you to state your case. Yeah. And if you, have, if you have not done it effectively, then that's not the reviewer's fault. That's your fault. You can't appeal to say, you, don't under, you just don't understand I mean, that's your responsibility as an author there. And so that, hence, we, we responded with a number of other crit, uh, criticism there. Now, the thing is, I've, I've, heard from, I've heard from Andy. I've heard from his publisher. Um, I don't know, actually know Andy personally. Um, but I've heard from them more or less saying that's not actually what, what we believe. We actually just share these very common views. Here's how I responded, Jared. Now I'm finally going to catch up to you. <laughs> I said, then maybe the problem here is the particular kind of communication style that is typical of N.T. Wright. I said, you can't expect me to think that he agrees with me when I'm his foil <laughs> right. for everything. So, and, then, and then, then the response was, well, no, actually, there's just a bunch of people living in the South who actually believe in this legalistic religion that they just, they just worship the Ten Commandments and they think that's religion. I'm like, I live in the buckle of the Bible Belt, <laughs> and I don't know anybody who actually, who actually holds those views. So I'm kind of in the middle of that, but I said, if you expect people to not, be, to not respond with disagreement to what you say, then you probably shouldn't set those people up as the people that you're criticizing right, right. in the book. And that's the same thing with Wright. I don't know exactly what Wright believes, but I do know this. He really thinks the Reformation screwed it up. Yeah. So because I think the Reformation got it right, well, then I expect I'm going to disagree with him. 
So you, you, you nailed it right there. It's a certain kind of a communication medium of to make your point, you have to dichotomize strongly with some kind of historic view. And that is a common communication technique to write and to Stanley. Yeah, you know, and I think there's something to be said, um, even whether the theology is right or wrong, um, the way it can kind of replicate is in its ability to be articulated and grasped. Um, you know, this is something that I think maybe they also share in common is the response. Like if you disagree uh, or, or think you do, what you're told is you just don't understand. As if, you know, if, if you were clued in, if you had the special knowledge to get what we get about them, you you would agree with us. And so it's sort of like an argument against, um, you know, your intellect or something, I, I, I suppose, or just your savviness in you know in picking up what they're laying down. If you if you understood it, you would you would agree. And I think, well, maybe I understand it, I just disagree. Isn't that you know when this happens, Jared, this happens also with reformed theology, because you will run into this in Baptist circles in particular, where people will simply perpetuate the same um, myths about Calvinism or Reformed theology. And you think, come on, you obviously just don't understand it. Yeah. Here's the difference, I think. The difference is that Reformed theology is an actual coherent body of theology held by many people over a very long period of time around the world. Okay, so there is this thing called a tradition that you can appeal to to say, okay, well, maybe you should spend some more time doing this. The challenge with Wright and Stanley, and I don't want to say that I don't want to make it sound like they're the same people, but right, right. there is a common, a common, like I said, a communication technique there, is that they seem to be putting themselves kind of singularly as the prophet who's come to tell the truth that's, that's about right. about these things. And that's that I think is one of the, the major the major differences. And I also just I, with Stanley in particular. A lot of times you have to understand it. You have to be able to look, and this happens in my job all the time. I need to understand what somebody is against before I can understand what they're for, because so many of us are in reaction. It's actually something about this reform movement that I was worried about for a while, is if it's only in reaction to, say, the boomer church, right. like you were talking about, then it's going to be neutered and, and ineffective long term. But if they can sink themselves deep into an actual tradition, then they'll, then they'll, be, then they'll be okay. Um, but I kept thinking with Stanley, I've had a hard time understanding what exactly is the reaction to, because at least in my experience within the evangelical church, I don't see a problem of too many people obeying the Ten Commandments, <laughs> and I don't see a problem of too many evangelicals knowing their Old Testament That's right. really well. Here's what I do see. Evangelicals who never read their Old Testament, if they read their Bible, who couldn't name you the Ten Commandments, even if their life depended on it. And I put myself, I mean, I, I can do it now, but that's just because of kids. <laughs> so I have to learn that kind of stuff. Um, but then also who, who perpetuate myths like, I don't read the Old Testament because it's old. And because that was a different God who was really judgmental and mean, right. as opposed to the New Testament God of grace and Jesus. That's what I see out there. But I and, and I and if that's true of Christians, I don't even know what would be true of non-Christians in that sense. So part of the part of the challenge here is that I just don't exactly understand what the response is or just or kind of who the foil is supposed to be if it's not historic Christian orthodoxy. Yeah. 
Okay, I want to come back to the introspection thing, uh, but first let's take a break and listen to a word from our sponsors at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Okay, we're back. We're speaking with Colin Hansen, editorial director for the Gospel Coalition, author and editor of numerous books, and uh, journalist, archivist, raconteur. <laughs> can, I, can I keep going? Man I about think time. I've earned it with this podcast. I <laughs> think so, brother. I think so. Um, okay, let's talk. Okay, we talk about the history. We talk about some of the progression, the conferences, the you know, uh, leading figures, etc. What do you see as the state of things, right? So we're 12 years on from your article, probably 15 years on sort of from this kind of groundswell. And, you know, when I look at it, you know, the so-called gospel-centered movement, it, it, it seems to me that at one time it, you had kind of like the junk drawer, um, but now someone's pulled the drawer out and just sort of <laughs> thrown all the pieces out onto the onto the kitchen floor, and uh, <laughs> or they've just organized the drawer, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe that's a, a more elegant way of of seeing it. It, it. It's become multiple movements, or we've somewhat tribalized within the tribe, I think. Um, but I wonder if you have a, you know, from your journalistic eye, um, what your take is on that. What do you see as the state of yeah. things? How has the movement changed, I guess, is the big question. Well, I think there's three distinct different challenges that uh, that we've kind of run through in the last 10 years. And one of them that we're still with that I'm not really sure how that's going to sort out. So the first two were very obvious from the beginning. And it was just a matter of how exactly they were going to sort out. Okay. The first one of them was more or less some of the mega church Mark Driscoll phenomenon. Yeah. I profiled Mark Driscoll uh, years ago in, in Christianity Today, about, about 10 years ago as well. And one of the things I noticed with him that was fascinating is that he held to a Reformed soteriology, so he fit into this new Calvinism, but he was also very pre pretty much unapologetic about his church growth techniques and proclivities. And on top of that, he was also um, charismatic. Yeah. And it just was not really, I mean, in, in his view of the spiritual gifts and also in his personality, but, yeah. but in view of the spiritual gifts. And I couldn't, I just remember it was an open question, what exactly is going to win out here? And with Mark, what went out was the church growth yeah, part. Right. And it ended up being his, his undoing. Um, and he's not the only one who was in that situation. Another person who'd been a council member for TGC who's uh, had a hard time with some of the same kinds of dynamics has been James McDonald, um, who were, they were very close friends uh, through TGC. So, yeah. so first of it was, was like, actually, a, some of this stuff is still the same old church growth stuff, except with a reformed gloss on top of it. 
um, and maybe maybe some different clothing and maybe a different style of preaching in some ways. You know, you would not put James McDonald or Mark Driscoll in the same category as Bill Hybels in terms of the kind of style of their preaching. Right. But when you look at the way those churches are run and some of the seeds of their own undoing uh, actually have have some some things in common. So that was the first element was the church growth challenge. Uh, the second one was the kind of insidious nature of therapeutic language. So there, it is possible. I remember sitting in my church at one point, and you're not going to find too many people who appreciate Tim Keller more than I do. And I remember thinking in a church that's been heavily influenced by Keller's teaching, including me personally, I remember thinking, gosh, if you only hit a lot of the highlights of Keller without a proper biblical balance, in fact, without a proper balance that Keller shows, you kind of just um, you kind of just make people feel good in a therapeutic terms and call it grace. Yeah. And so that's a bit of what we saw ultimately with Tolene Chivijan, yeah. uh, one of our bloggers. I, I remember just thinking, wait a minute, at some point we departed here from talking about grace in biblical terms to using grace as a cover for some kind of therapeutic um, motif to ministry mm. here. And I don't, I don't know when that happened, Jared. If it happened early on, I didn't perceive it. But by the end, it seemed very clear. Um, and in part because the preaching wasn't even pretending to be biblical anymore, or it was being very selective, pulling from maybe just Galatians and Romans. Um, but I just remember seeing there was like there was a departure between certain voices that were mature and rooted in a Reformed confession and in a biblical teaching and others who were who were not, put it that way. Um, and ultimately, then there was um, a very sad and distressing connection between that that theology and ultimately behavior as well, which which was very very distressing to see. That was the second big challenge. The third challenge, right now, relates to public theology and racial mm. issues. The Gospel Coalition set out to try to be different from uh, the post-war evangelical movement in trying to be in trying to be much more ethnically diverse. Um, but so the first the first signs of of major problems, um, and by problems I just mean disagreement um, and some tension, came with 2014 with Ferguson, yeah, and uh, and really, you know, accelerated with uh, you know, a little. Well, let's just say 2016 was a pretty tense year for all of us. <laughs> yes. Um, so the, the 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 presidential politics really threw an issue that was already a challenge into stark relief. Throw in that the the influence of social media and smartphones, ultimately as it relates to officer-involved shootings, and you have a, a, a volatile situation that continues to now. Um, that uh, you know, I mean, we can we can see everywhere we look. And one of the things I've concluded this last year is that um, it, it, this gospel-centered movement has more or less rallied around a certain. A certain set of soteriology or doctrines of salvation um, that they share in common, but we disagree—not uh, you and me, but we you know others disagree on modes of baptism or ecclesiology or any number of other things. Well, that's not necessarily a, a coalition that's going to perpetuate forever. Sometimes the issues are going to change, yeah. and they're going to—they're—they're they're going to shift. 
And one of the things we may be seeing right now is a bit of a realignment um, on, on those racial issues. And I think you, Jared, have put your finger on exactly the issue. I consistently now see issues that were not controversial two years ago or three years ago suddenly become matters of orthodoxy right. among some people. You know, or, or, to, to, or this, uh, I saw somebody recently point out that all of a sudden you see people saying to point out race or to talk about racism or to advocate for a multi-ethnic church is yourself to be racist. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and it just these are changes in the, next, in the last couple of years. Now, if you want to get right down to it, I actually think there has been far less division than I expected there to be. Nevertheless, that is still kind of an ongoing uh, issue that I'm not exactly sure how it sorts out. But I know you have some some insight being at the center of some of those debates uh, online. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting to see just sort of the impact of um, social media and just even, yeah. you know, media, you know, institutions or organizations on this because it's easy um, to just sort of say, ah, you know, this is really just a tempest in the Twitter teapot. This is not really, but it, it really does sort of reach into local congregations. And I think because of the splicing or the dovetailing of, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, the political, you know, continual political volatility, um, you know, through some of these, uh, you know, major incidents in, uh, in the States, because of that somehow becoming overlaid or just impacting local congregational life, and then you have voices sort of speaking into uh, their respective tribes, the, you know, the fracture just gets wider and wider. And um, I think it's more widespread than, um, you know, um, some of us who just see the arguments on Twitter tend to think it is. The easiest thing to do would just be say, oh, this is just Twitter people. Um, but it's really not, um, you know. You just you you see it um, everywhere, and like you said, it 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 really is. To me, is like I've been on the back, you know, on my heels um, over the last couple of years because there are things like, man, this would not, we would not have been arguing about, you know, whether the you know Galatians two. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like yeah. this would not have been an issue, or like you know, I published a you know a blog post several years ago on social justice and. And it was called "Why Social Justice Is Necessary," and a portion of that appeared in one of my books published by Crossway. And you know, I wasn't perhaps as high profile, or that book wasn't as high profile, or what have you. You could say nobody yeah. noticed, maybe I suppose, but not a single person said you're a Marxist or any, you know, to just say you know we ought to love our neighbor this way and and you know care for the oppressed or what have you. Um, it's just gotten really, really strange. I um, let me give you an illustration of that. Jared. Um, so when Russell Moore came into his position at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the Wall Street Journal had profiled him. And of course, that that move came in the middle of a lot of this stuff that we're talking about here before the presidential election, of course. But certainly these issues were being raised. And I remember him making a comment because I think there was some concern. Well, you know, politically speaking, he worked for a Democrat in Congress, a very conservative Democrat, probably more conservative than vast majority of Republicans today. Mm. But anyway, he'd worked for a Democrat and he um, you know, was just outspoken on a lot of different issues. And so the thought was, well, gosh, especially compared to his predecessor, Richard Land, does this mark a liberal shift in the SBC? And he responded and said, oh, actually, I think 
I and many of the people who support me are more theologically conservative than previous generations. And I remember just thinking, I never really thought about it that way, but I actually think that's really true. In my experience within the SBC, which most people don't realize was a mainline denomination uh, for much of the 20th century. And uh, it was a heroic movement of God for for that to change. Um, But now, now I see what was, now I think I see things a little bit more clearly. Yes, theologically conservative, but that assumes that most of the SBC was theologically inclined. Well, here's, here's what I mean by that. Sean Lucas has a history of the PCA that is actually fairly similar, I think, to the SBC. He said, you don't really understand the PCA unless you understand it as a movement of theological, social, and political conservatism. And he said, those are not in a tiered, uh, you know, a tiered um, direction. Those are, those are like three stools that are all equal. And I thought, does that actually make more sense of the SBC as well? That you can't, one thing I've just noticed, Jared, at TGC is that we've tried to hold theological conservatism um, separate from a sort of American republicanism. Right. And a part of that, that's because of a lot of different commitments, including our international commitments. But I found that that is not easily, or maybe even for a lot of people, that's not, that's not possible. You, you cannot separate those things. Yeah in their mind. And I don't say conservatism, I say republicanism, because it seems like the Republican Party can change, and they'll change with it. Right. Um, you know, while holding this theological conservative view. So that's, that's something that if you were having this conversation with me, certainly in 2008, or in 2014, or even in for much of 2016, I don't think I would have said the same thing. But I don't think I can deny that now. Um, and that's uh, that's a real. Whew, I really don't know how yet to process yeah. all that. What do you make of? Um, and maybe you don't see the same thing I do, but this, in my estimation, uh, sort of even flavors of the alt right in certain voices that would have one time identified with the gospel centered movement now crit- yeah. critical of. In particular, the critical of TGC, the ERLC, things I see as right. liberal, um, you know, cultural sellouts yeah. and, and, and that sort of thing. And they and using language um, – so, yeah, using language that uh, – or jargon that was common among alt-right or still is common among the alt-right and, and that yeah. sort of thing. And it's it, – to me, looking as a cultural phenomenon, you see um, things like – you know, the downfall of, of Driscoll, or at least the fall out of this movement, and um, sort of culturally or tribally we said, hey, that's not good, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. and and kind of, you know, put that down and thought, hey, we're going to grow, we're going to mature, we're actually going to become more Christ-like as a movement, and then you've got now, um, I think the image I used on social media last week or so was sort of like, you know, that image of when you you know, crush a spider web and, yeah. a mil- and a million baby spiders come out. It's like that, right? We toppled these, you know, these big angry guys. And now all these little angry guys are like, they're starting a podcast and YouTube channels and to like yell at us about like, no, you really are wusses, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, man, I thought we got rid of this guy. So where does that come well, from? Like, why are, why are, yeah, yeah. Where does that come so, from? So one thing to be, one thing to be helpful to see here is the nature of movements. Um, when you have a bunch of people 
Like it's easy to it's easy to rally. Let's say, for example, Jared, that you and I got together in 2005, and your background was being burned out of the of the boomer church, the seeker church. Yeah. And I didn't have any experience in that, but I'll tell you. But I was burned out of the mainline church, the United Methodist Church that I'd grown up in, and we both found refuge in Reformed theology. Even though you and I had very different experiences, we could share in one sense, a common solution, and I, in one sense, a common enemy, a, cor- a theologically corrupted church mm. that we wanted to get more historically rooted, just like we've been talking about in this podcast. Well, that's a, you know, that's a movement marriage of a certain contemporary context, okay, that a lot of the people who are critical right now, they didn't like Mark Driscoll. They didn't like my book when it came out. They've never liked Tim Keller. They don't like that. So they, they've been they've been complaining about Christian hedonism and John Piper for decades. I think people don't realize that there's a reformed fundamentalist movement. Yeah. Um, but if you if you want to find it, go go uh, go scare up a Metropolitan Tabernacle today. <laughs> go look up some of the some of the blog posts that that Peter Masters wrote about me a long time ago. Like there's an actual reformed fundamentalist movement. It is not new. Um, and I, it, it pains me to say it because of how much I like the 1689 confession, but usually there are the number 1689 connected to it somehow. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's always, that's always been there. And maybe we just weren't paying attention to that. Maybe it wasn't as vocal, maybe who knows, maybe social media just brought us into some kind of proximity here. Um, that that's one dynamic. Another dynamic, just to come back to that earlier point is that, Maybe there were a lot of people who were attracted to the movement just because it was against something. Mm. Um, and they're the kind of personalities who always need to be against something. Um, and so they were against uh, they were against so and so when he was popular, and then so and so when he. I mean, they can just kind of cycle through that dynamic. I think if you if you if you start with reform fundamentalism, you add on top of that um, just sort of contrarian personalities. I think Reformed theology attracts contrarian personalities yeah. in many cases. And so you have, you have that dynamic. Then throw on top of that what I said earlier about the fusion between theological conservatism and American republicanism. I think if, if, if you combine those three things, it probably goes a long way to explain what we're seeing. And the opposition that you and I or others might be facing, such as it is, is not necessarily, it's, it's probably coming from one of those sources, but not necessarily, they're not the same thing. I guess you could be all three. We could probably identify some people who are all three, but those are three distinct phenomena that, uh, that are all contributing to, I think, what you're talking about yeah. here. I think you're right. What, looking forward then, right, let's close with this. What do you see, um, you know, if you're going to chart the trajectory, be a, a convictional visionary here for us. Uh, what are we looking at for the next one, two, five years in the evangelical landscape, do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I had a friend who, he's a new pastor at a church, and he's had one elder leave over racial issues. He looks like he's got another elder leaving. And it was in part because he's been supportive of TGC and what we've been publishing and conferences that we've that we've done. And he asked me, "Well, Colin, do you think um, you think this is going to get better?" And I said, "Oh no, hmm. definitely not better. Just stop and think. Let, let's 
you know, we are about to head into another election season, yeah. presidential election. Um, and if you think it was bad the first time around, imagine, I mean, we all, I mean, we're not all, I mean, I know some people thought Donald Trump would win, but most of us didn't think he was going to win. Right. Now he's been the president and I just, especially reelection campaigns are scorched earth. I suspect there was a lot of apocalyptic language that was tossed around in, in, uh, in, in 2016, which is interesting, Jared, now that you and I have been around long enough, we can say, hasn't it been that way for every single election <laughs> of our lifetime? Yes. I mean, haven't I already been warned by the religious right 20 times that my entire life was yeah. at stake with this election? But I think you're actually going to hear from both sides going to 2020 that if you support the other side, you are literally killing people. Right. Like, I mean, you are responsible for the deaths of people if you vote. Like, I'm just not sure. We see that kind of rhetorical amplifying uh, over time. And I just think it's going to build, build, build toward that sort of culmination with the 2020 presidential election. Now, of course, there will be other things that change in that time. But the reason I bring that up is because that's going to have an effect on, on exacerbating those tensions that we just talked about as they relate to race and, and politics and stuff like that. So I expect that to continue. Um, but I'll say, you know, we had to, this, in 2018, Billy Graham died. And gosh, I think it's for about 50 years. I'm not even joking. For about 50 years, people were talking about who the next Billy Graham would be. <laughs> it's almost like as soon as Billy Graham came onto the stage, it was like, who's the next one going to be? Mm. And the best answer and the consistent answer he gave over time was, I'm not going to be a Billy Graham. There'll be hopefully thousands, tens of thousands of people armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ to make disciples of the nations. Um, there's not going to be one evangelist. There'll be tens of thousands mm. of evangelists. Yeah, yeah. But nobody's writing big profiles about them or or anything. They're just doing faithful work. And so I think as we as we come into a time when uh, either through retirement or illness or any number of things, a lot of those really tighten figures um, of that gospel-centered movement are going to begin to take a step back. I mean, even for the Gospel Coalition, our leadership is, is very stable, but in the last year, both of our leaders retired from their full-time jobs. Now, they still work like crazy, our president and vice president, Carson and Keller, but it's just a transition time yeah. for people. I think what you're going to see is, I mean, years ago, a critic of Piper told me when Piper dies— it's, it's like that spider phenomenon. All those little spiders will just die. Hmm. You know, it's like he was the queen bee. And they're all just going to die with him. And I said, you know, I just don't think that's remotely true. Um, it's not an, you, you think this is an obsession with a person. You have the wrong person. You have John Piper instead of Jesus Christ here. That's why we appreciate Piper is because he helps us to know Jesus. Yes. Not because he just helps us to know himself. Um, and that's not going to change. And so I think, Jared, the, the pastors you guys are training at Midwestern and all these other places, maybe there won't be anybody writing a profile or a book about them. They'll just be faithfully leading churches. And so my hope is that yeah, in a few years, maybe nobody will be doing interviews with me about the Young Restless Reform, but that'll be because it's just the way things are. Mm. Um, you know, it's not it's not some kind of trend. It's just, you know, drive around Kansas City and take your pick. Yeah. You know, of all those churches that are just being faithfully led by Bible teachers who care for people, who evangelize, you know, simple as that. And Jesus just doing good work. And, hey, 
maybe the Lord will even bless with with revival there. So that's that's how I see things coming. A little bit of a of a bad side, but also I think ultimately a, a good side as well. Amen. May it be so. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Yeah, it's been great talking with you. I can't wait to see you again. Maybe we'll uh, take in another Royals game together. <laughs> Go Royals. <laughs> I love him. I'll be with them thick and thin. And now I've got a son, so he's there. You, go. you know, he's, he's got to learn. He's got to learn his ways. Well, that's awesome. We've been talking with Colin Hansen. He is the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition, author and editor of numerous books, including Young, Restless, Reformed, A God-Sized Vision, Revival Stories That Stretch and Stir, and Blind Spots, Becoming a Courageous, Compassionate, and Commissioned Church. Of course, you can find the Gospel Coalition online. Check out Colin's books at Amazon or wherever fine Christian titles are sold. If you like the podcast, uh, please recommend us to your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.